Thanks everybody for being here. This is undoubtedly the largest class I think I've ever, ever had. Uh, so this is very exciting. Uh, Rob and I have gotten to do this class in a lot of different places. We've done it at Donaldson Church of Christ, Woodmont Hills. Um, we've done it at Woodmont Christian. We've done it as a lifelong learning class at Lipscomb. We've taught it twice as an undergrad class at Lipscomb. Um, and so we're finally very grateful to get to be here at Otter Creek. Uh, I'm particularly excited this time because my dad, uh, he, they moved here about a year ago from, uh, from Texas, and uh, he's going to get to join us as well. Uh, he's not here. He's in Fort Worth right now. Um, but uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about the family in a minute. But throughout the next 13 weeks, you'll have me and Rob and my dad, David, at various points. I'll have to miss, I think, two weeks. Rob will miss some. Dad will miss some. But you'll have one of us here every week. Um, so real quick, let me tell you what we're going to do with the class, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about the family and our involvement and why we're teaching this class, uh, and then we're going to talk a little theology uh, today. So what we want to try and do with this class is we, we're calling it Israel-Palestine 101. So this is kind of a primer to the conflict. Hopefully everyone knew, knows that there is an actual conflict that's happening over there. We did teach an undergrad class this semester, and one student had never heard of it. No idea people were fighting. Um, so I do hope that everyone knows we're going to work with that basic assumption. Everyone knows <laughs> that Israelis and Palestinians, for the most part, are not getting along. So if we're all there, we're on a good starting, uh, starting point. So uh, what we're going to try and do is walk you through the history. Hopefully it's history. Well, it'd be great if it was history that you had heard before, but more than likely it's history you probably haven't heard before. We want to tell a little more of a side of the story that most folks haven't heard. So we're going to start in about the late 1800s with the rise of political Zionism take you through the establishment of the State of Israel, through the 1967 war, through the first and second intifadas. We're going to talk about suicide bombing. We're going to talk about rockets. We're going to talk about settlements. We're going to talk about the wall. We're going to talk about refugees. We're going to talk about Jerusalem. Uh, we're also going to talk about reconciliation. Uh, we're going to talk about peace building, and we're going to talk about the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about this? Does it say anything about this conflict? <laughs> Does a text written thousands of years ago say anything about what's happening in 2016 regarding a political conflict between two, uh, two peoples? Does it say that the land belongs to the Jews forever? If it does say forever, what does forever actually mean? So we want to kind of break that down into, uh, into those different questions, look at the context for, uh, for what was written, uh, when was it written, what was the context at the time, what does it mean in the actual context of the literature that it's written in? Uh, and so Rob is our resident theologian, so he will be, he'll be discussing, uh, discussing those pieces. And we're going to kind of launch into that a little bit today, and we'll come back to it in later weeks. Um, so today we'll do a little theology. Tomorrow we'll start with the political history and start working our way uh, through. We're going to show a film as well, we hope. Uh, called tomorrow, but that probably... That's not... That's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the whenever we come back okay. next week. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Just, just the family member. Thank you for pointing that out. You've touched on a great many tensions in the family. Uh, apparently, when Rob was a kid, um, he said something that I think would be the title of his autobiography. And uh, he said, I just opened my mouth and all kinds of mischief, mischief come to doubt. Uh, and I think that's the title of Rob's life right there. Uh, just kidding. So anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're also going to show a film, hopefully, called With God on Our Side, which is a look at Christian Zionism. Uh, which is the theological approach of some Christians um, in support of Israel and why they support Israel. So we'll look at documentary on that. So that's where we're going. That's our scope and sequence. A little bit about uh, who we are. So again, I'm Michael. Um, my family's been involved in the Middle East since 1967. 
my grandfather was an archaeologist, and uh, he had the opportunity in 1967 in June, I think right before or after the, after the war, uh, he had the opportunity to go and see the Holy Land for the first time, so he skipped walking for his PhD from the University of Chicago uh, and decided to go for a once-in-a-lifetime trip because he would never get to do it again. Well, he's been about 40 times, uh, <laughs> so that didn't, it wasn't quite true. Um, but he's traveled there uh, with my grandmother Annette and their three sons um, at various points throughout the last 40, 50 years. And, uh, and they've done archaeological digs, they've taught at schools. Um, Rob and my dad and their younger brother Barry spent a year there in 69? 73. 73, and then a summer in 69? Yeah. Uh, so they spent some time there as kids which kind of uh, implanted in them, I think, this, um, this mysterious connection to the land. If, has anyone been, who's been there before? It'd be helpful to see a show of hands. Okay, great. So as you probably already know, when you go there, kind of you get infected in some way, and it's sort of this magnetic connection that's really hard to let go of. Um, and you kind of, you just want to keep going back, sometimes more than you've wanted to go back to any place in the world. Um, and it's sometimes hard to understand because it's a fairly tense place. <laughs> Uh, it can be stressful, it can be scary at times, um, it can be overwhelming, um, but there's something that keeps drawing us back. And that, uh, that happened to my father at a young age, and so he wanted his kids to experience that same thing as well. So we had planned to take a family sabbatical in 2001. Uh, my dad's a family practice physician. So we planned to take a family sabbatical in 2001 and head over to uh, live in Jerusalem. But as you probably know, what happened in late 2000 was the start of the second intifada. So another major Palestinian uprising happened after Ariel Sharon uh, led um, police onto the Temple Mount. And uh, Second Intifada broke out, and so we changed course. And unfortunately, we had to spend that time in Greece and Athens. It's just a terrible, terrible childhood. Um, and so, but we did get to spend a month uh, traveling throughout Israel. We didn't go much into the West Bank. Uh, we just, I think we just went to Bethlehem. Um, but I, that was one of my first introductions. I had gone just the year before and then back in 2001. And then I also began getting infected. I left with this fascination with Judaism. I remember talking to my parents about could I possibly convert from Christianity to Judaism Christianity and be like a Messianic Jew, but the other way around, like <laughs> where you add on Judaism instead of adding on Christianity. And I wanted to put a mezuzah on my, on my door and I wanted to wear a kippah and pray the prayer book. And I wanted to do all those things. I was completely fascinated. Um, but something started happening in, for the family. Uh, and in 2000, on my very first trip, we went with uh, myself, my father, and my grandparents. And while we were uh, at Bethlehem Bible College, my dad found a pamphlet, a brochure, from an Israeli human rights organization. Not a Palestinian one, an Israeli one called B'Tselem. And it began documenting some of the things that happened to Palestinians in, the in 1948 when the State of Israel was established. And the stuff that dad was reading, he thought, I've, I have never heard this before. Could this possibly be true? How have we been coming here for decades and we've never heard this story? So he started asking my grandparents, have you all heard this? And they hadn't really heard it either, at least not in the way that uh, Bethsalem was, was documenting it. But when my dad was a kid, his father instilled in him the importance of a relentless pursuit of the truth. Uh, you pursue the truth at all costs. Um, and it often got my granddad into trouble. Uh, but uh, my dad started to dig then, and uh, he began to uncover uh, pieces of the story that we'd never heard before, and really began to change our uh, relationship to the land and our perception of the conflict there. 
And so it's kind of from his initiation into kind of diving deeper and figuring out a whole different side of the story that we've begun to talk about this uh, and to try and tell this side of the story that we hadn't heard before 2000 and that many people still haven't heard today in 2016. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Um, between my uncle and uh, myself and my father, we've made 35 combined trips. Uh, Dad's made about 20 of those. So I've made nine personally. I've worked uh, in uh, Bethlehem for a summer with an organization um, that uh, works with developmentally disabled youth and young adults. And then I also spent a, uh, a few months with Christian peacemaker teams in Hebron, which is um, the trip that I wrote this book about, Letters from Apartheid Street. So I was doing nonviolent direct action in the West Bank. Uh, and then in the fall, I went back again uh, as part of a storytelling project with Texas Christian University. And I was traveling through Israel, Palestine, Northern Ireland, South Africa, doing about 50 interviews with uh, people on their experiences of reconciliation, justice, and forgiveness. Talking with an Israeli father whose daughter was killed by a suicide bomber. Talking with a Palestinian whose brother was assassinated by an Israeli soldier. So kind of hearing both sides of this and, and wrestling with how in the midst of such hatred and tension and loss do people transcend that and find a way to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, so that's some of my background. I have a master's in conflict resolution and reconciliation from a school in, in Ireland. Uh, and then I teach on that stuff at, at Lipscomb as an adjunct. Rob's background is in theology. He has a master's in theology from, is it Wheaton? Um, and then I would, I would argue has a doctoral knowledge of all of this stuff related to the Bible from 30 years of ministry. Um, and I'm sure you've probably preached here. Uh, and uh, you, maybe you haven't preached here. I don't think so. He's There's preached most everywhere. Dad's so. scared of him. Dad. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so Rob's background's in theology. Uh, he has led tours, um, kind of biblical pilgrimages, and, and trying to introduce people to another way of seeing the conflict. Uh, led tours over there. Uh, my father is a family practice physician, as I say, uh, and every year he takes medical students and residents from the United States um, to Israel and the West Bank, and they do uh, me medical kind of rotations in Palestinian Israeli clinics. And he's helping trying to build a uh, family practice uh, program and residency in, uh, in the West Bank uh, in Palestinian medical society. So that's kind of what we're bringing to it. My dad has incredibly up-to-date knowledge uh, on what's happening. Rob has in-depth theological analysis of this. And then I'm bringing some of the political history and, and uh, theories on peace building and reconciliation. So hopefully between the three of us, you'll hear something that you find moderately interesting. Um, so we're going to move forward, I think, with a... Uh, does anybody have any questions, first of all? Any clarifications so far on that? I wouldn't think so, but great. So what we like to do at the start of every class um, is a word association exercise to kind of feel out the room, see what people are bringing into it, because uh, we all bring our biases, we all bring our assumptions and our preconceptions. Those of us who have been there have seen things that others of us haven't seen, and that's influenced the way that we think about this and the way we talk about it. So there is no right or wrong answer to this whatsoever. It's simply to see what's in the room. So to start with, when you hear the word Israel, what comes to mind? What are the words that come to mind? What do you associate with it? What do you personally, not, what do you, not like what do you think other people, but what do you personally associate with the word? If you've ever taken a class with me or Rob before, maybe hold off because I want to see what everybody else is bringing to this. So the word Israel, what comes to mind? Promise. Promised land. I got two of those at the same time. Keep them coming. Judaism. Okay. Zionism. What was the other one? Abraham. Abraham. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to add him right here. Bully. Say again? Bully. Bully? As in B-U-L-L-Y? Okay. War. War? That's probably accurate. People without a homeland. Excellence. Holocaust. Say again over there. Excellence. First I thought you said X-Men. <laughs> that is a wrong answer. So uh, we have finally found it. Uh, did you say excellence? Okay. <laughs> Say again? Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Surrounded. Surrounded by? Okay. Was enemies the word that you would have used? Um, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> Masad. Masad. How is it? Is it M-O-S-S-A-D? That's what I thought, yeah. What else? God's chosen. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Tell me what feelings you have. Well, let me do it this way. How many, when you hear the word Israel by show of hands, how many have a pretty concretely warm, positive, relaxed, affirming feeling when you hear the word Israel? Show of hands. Put them high. Looks like maybe... A little over a third, I would say. How many don't really have a reaction one way or the other? Anybody? Just, okay, makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Palestine. Same exercise. When you hear the word Palestine, what are the words that come to mind? Suicide bombers. Suicide bombers. Oppressed, okay. Geography. Say again. Geography. Poor. Poor. Victimized. Heard some chuckles at that one. Hospitable. Hospitable. Judy, you've taken the class. Native American. What's that? Native American. Ooh. Displaced. Rocks and a gun Rocks and a gun at a gunfight. <laughs> Walls. Mm-hmm. Desperate. Desperate. Is it an E or an A? It's an A? It, it, it's an a? ER, yeah. Desperate. Okay. Okay. What else? Few options. Islam? Anything else? Same people? These two are the same people? Well, that's interesting. Okay. 
Refugee. We'll just, yeah. So interesting there, and I don't know how many of you knew this, but until this year, I think Palestinians and their descendants were the largest refugee population in the world. Anyone know what's now the largest? Syrians, yep. But it was Palestinians before that. So refugees is a very applicable term. Somebody whispered Ishmael. Ishmael. <coughs> what do you notice? Is there anything that stands, any word that stands out to you that's not on either list? Peace. Peace. <laughs> Easter. Easter? Christian. Christianity didn't make the list. It started here. That's interesting. Started here. There are Christians in both countries. Palestinians call themselves the original Christians. It all started there. But it's interesting that Christianity didn't make the list, which shows about something that we're bringing to this conflict that we're not even associating Christianity with what's happening. Jesus didn't make the list. Temple Mount didn't make the list. Dome of the Rocks and the Landmarks. What else? Any, anything else you... I'm standing in front of it. Anything else you don't see up there that kind of strikes you as odd? Jesus needs to be up there. Should I add him? Where should I add him? Right in the middle. That's good Christians right there. He transcends it all. Yeah, allies not up here. Terrorists didn't make the list. That is so interesting. Now you got close with it here. You got real close. You flirted with it. Hezbollah didn't make the list. Hamas didn't make the list. Mossad did. That was, I've never had Mossad make the list. Friends. Friends? Mm-hmm. What else? Anything else? U.S. policy? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like Israel lobby, things like that. Christian evangelicals. Yeah, Christian evangelicals, Christian Zionism didn't make the list. Zionism did. Anything else? Peace. Yeah, someone mentioned peace earlier on. Peace didn't make it. Language like occupation didn't make it. Apartheid didn't make it. Those show up sometimes. Injustice, justice, those things didn't make it. Now, we'll do the same thing again at the very end of class and see how things have changed. So I'm going to take a picture of it so that we can talk about if we learned anything. Great. Yep. So uh, when you think of Palestine, how many have, show of hands, how many have a decidedly warm, positive, affirming feeling when you hear the word Palestine? Show of hands. Way less than with Israel. Way less. Okay, how many have a decidedly negative, antagonistic feeling when you hear the word Israel? Okay, and the same thing here. How many have a decidedly negative, antagonistic feeling, feeling toward Palestine? A little bit more. So, we do this at the start of every class. This one is actually a little more level than most of the other classes we've done. Traditionally, it's been about 90% affirming positive toward Israel and about 10% toward Palestine. Pretty much across the board, no matter where we do this. Um, now, we've only done it in Churches of Christ. I don't know what that means, but, uh, you know, but that's, that's been our experience so far. So this is a little more balanced, but still what we have seen right off the bat is that in terms of our 
prejudices and just the sense of our prejudgments, we're already, the scales are already tipped, right? We just saw that. They're already tipped slightly in favor of Israel. More of us have war- positive, affirming feelings toward Israel than we do toward Palestine. Now, our theory for that is it's primarily because of the stories that we have told and the stories that we're listening to. That's, that's what informs the way that we engage these situations are what we hear and what we pay attention to, whether it's what we accidentally hear or what we choose to hear, the type of news that we pay attention to, the type of people we listen to who interpret our theology, um, the type of books that we read, all that stuff influences the way we deal with this. So this suggests that we've paid a little more attention, um, that the stories that we have, uh, that we have told and are being told um, are influencing us to be a little more sympathetic toward Israel than toward Palestine, right? Question in the back? I can't, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Right. Mm. Yeah, so your perception is that the, the national media tends to present more of a negative image of Palestinians and Israelis. That if an Israeli soldier kills a kid, it's probably not going to make the front page. But if a Palestinian kills an Israeli child, that may very well make right. the front page. What we see is what we, what we right. What we yeah. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah, so the media tends to appeal to what people want to hear and according, or the, what they think people should hear. So whether it's based on what they think people should hear or what they think people want to hear, it's telling us that Israel's more of the good guy than the Palestinians, right? That's at least what we're getting from, from mainstream media. Now, who's to say or up front whether that's right or wrong? We definitely have our feelings about that. You can probably guess the title of my book. Um, but we still, we want to try and say, if the scales are already tipped, if they're already imbalanced, if we provide a perfectly balanced narrative, what happens to those scales? Do they change? No, they don't change at all. If they're already tipped and imbalanced, if we just present equal narratives, we don't change anything. So the reason they're tipped, our theory is, is because we've heard more of one story than the other. So the way that we like to do these classes is to try and say, what would happen to the way that we think about this if we heard a little more of the other side of the story? Not to the detriment of perhaps the Israeli side, but if we paid a little more attention to the Palestinian side, heard a little more of those stories, would that change anything? Maybe it won't. I've done this class and I had a student tell me at the end, I don't really care what's happening to the Palestinians. God gave the land to the Jews. Simple as that. That very well may be where you come out. But maybe not. And so we want to just sort of walk through this uh, throughout the history, talk about the theology, and see uh, what conclusions we come to trying to to balance those scales. So we have about 15 minutes. It's perfect timing. I'm going to have Rob come up, and he's going to start introducing some theological questions for us to be holding on and thinking about throughout the, uh, the summer, and we'll come back and dive in a little deeper later on. First, let me say it's good to be at Otter Creek. I've got a lot of friends here. Has a long history here. Uh, uh, <laughs> see uh, some supporters of uh, Youth Encouragement Services, which is where I work now. I would love to be here more through this series, but uh, I am a shepherd at Woodmont Hills and on the preaching team there. 
Uh, and uh, it's going to be difficult for me to get away. Uh, your class lands right in the middle of our two services, so I miss everything when I'm here. And I do have some responsibilities there. So I'm going to come to help out on the things that, uh, that I can help with, and uh, David and Mike will handle the rest. But it's really good to, uh, to be here and appreciate this opportunity. Uh, most Christian evangelicals begin with an assumption that God gave the land to the Jews forever uh, because of a verse of scripture we're about to look at. And therefore, there's an immediate kind of bias that says whatever's going on in the land, uh, this is God's will. God intended Israel to be there. It's too bad for the Palestinians, but they don't have a right to the land. The Jews have a right to the land. And, uh, and what many Christians don't realize is that that way of reading Old Testament promises and prophecies is actually very new in terms of the history of Christianity. Uh, it has its roots in dispensationalism, which is only at most a couple of hundred years old, uh, but it only has become popular in American evangelicalism uh, in the last hundred years, really the last 50 or so. Uh, it really started picking up steam with the founding of the nation of Israel and some of the events leading up to it. Now that may come as a little bit of a shock because right now we kind of assume that if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you're supposed to believe that God gave the land to the Jews forever. And so when you hear that that's a new idea, something sounds really strange and you're already suspicious of me. Uh, but we're going to try to raise a few questions this morning and then we're going to come back. I'll be back in a few weeks when we get to kind of that point in the syllabus. And I'll come back and talk a little more about how to read the promises and prophecies of the Bible and, and look at this question a little more in depth. But this does begin, this, this whole uh, biblical side of the issue begins with the promise to Abraham. The promise to Abraham was in three parts. There were three basic elements to the promise to Abraham. One is, and we're familiar with the stories, God takes Abraham and shows him the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky and says, I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. Uh, the uh, second part of the promise is that he's going to give the land of Canaan to those descendants. He takes Abraham and shows him the land, says this land, as far as you can see, it's going to belong to your descendants, but not yet. Uh, and then, uh, and what I believe is the critical part of the promise, he says, through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. All peoples will be blessed through your descendants. The promise to Abraham is in the context of the mission of God in this world. God is not just picking Israel for Israel's sake. He's choosing Abraham to work through Abraham to accomplish something in the world that ultimately is accomplished in Jesus. So we need to hear the promise in this context of the broader narrative of Scripture and what God is doing. But that's what we mean when we talk about the promise of Abraham. That uh, from his uh, descendants will come a nation. In fact, a number of nations will come from his descendants including the Arab people, uh, from uh, 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 to his descendants through Isaac will be given this promised land. So there's, that's when we often think of the promised Abraham, we think of the promised land. It's only part of the promise. So they'll have a, a nation will come uh, through his descendants. They'll be given the land, and then through them, 
God will accomplish this uh, blessing of all uh, peoples. So we first encounter this in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham from uh, uh, Chaldea, later Babylonia. He says, you go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I'll make your name great. Uh, you will be a blessing. Uh, I will bless those who bless you. Uh, those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then in the next chapter, he says, lift up your eyes. He takes them to the land of Canaan, lets him look out over the land, and says, uh, uh, look from the place where you are. Look north, south, east, west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. There it is. Forever. Forever is a tricky word in the Bible. In Genesis 15... He says, your descendants will come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. This is another place where it's important to hear the promise to Abraham in the context of a narrative. God says, I'm going to give you the land, but I'm not going to give it to you now because it belongs to another people and I'm not going to do it until it's time for me to act in judgment upon them. So he postpones it. So even though he makes the promise to Abraham, it's going to be... Uh, a few hundred years before he begins to fulfill that part of the promise. To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So let's look and see what is this land that he is promising to Abraham. So this is what we call today Israel or Palestine. It's this area right in here, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Mediterranean, Sinai Peninsula. Over here is Egypt and the Nile. In here is Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria. This is modern Iraq. And uh, if you remember from your high school geography, Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, between the Euphrates and the Tigris. So he says, I'm, uh, I promise you this land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. So what does he mean by that? Most scholars believe that the river of Egypt is not the Nile, but was a brook that ran as kind of a border between uh, what we call Palestine or Israel and the Sinai, uh, and that the river Euphrates means the headwaters of the Euphrates to the north. This is desert. Uh, not too many people wanted it. <laughs> if you remember your classes, uh, again, your geography on the Fertile Crescent, you, know, you come up Mesopotamia and then come down the sea coast and then down into the Nile, and uh, in the middle out here is desert. Uh, some think that the river of Egypt refers to uh, uh, one of the uh, 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 kind of branches of the Nile as it goes into uh, the Mediterranean, and so that it included the Sinai. More, uh, more recent Zionists, kind of radical Zionists, the, the John Hagee types, and uh, uh, Texas, believe that it meant from the Nile River all the way across to the Euphrates. That's granting Abraham and his descendants the bulk of the Middle East. Now here's the problem historically with these views of the land. Israel never got it. Ever. So let's just back up for a minute to this territory here. If this is indeed the land promised to Israel, Israel actually occupied and controlled the bulk of that land for about a hundred years during the time of David and Solomon. 
but I thought God promised it to Abraham's descendants forever. That's what I mean when I say forever is a tricky word. If God promised it to Abraham forever, why didn't he ever give it to them? And why, when they finally got most of it, did they only have it for a hundred years? Israel almost never controlled the Sinai, and they never controlled any of the rest of that, except briefly in 1973 when they were pushing to the, <laughs> you know, to the Nile. But uh, that ought to make us question right off the bat. Wait a minute. If we've been reading the Bible in these recent decades to say Israel, modern, the modern nation of Israel has a right to this land because God promised it to the Jews forever, then why didn't God ever give it to them? Why just now? Maybe, maybe we've been reading the promises and prophecies different way than the Bible meant them or then Christians have understood them for the last couple of thousand years. Did I see a hand? Yes. Sir. The New Testament, Jesus is coming, changed everything. God changed it. And we're, we're talking about men's decisions. We're going we're gonna to get back to that uh, uh, when we come back and talk. How did Jesus view this? Which is really a critical question for Christians. How did Jesus view this? So I gotta, I, I'm gonna run out of time here. I've only got five minutes. So a quick question, okay? the answer to that to Mike when we get to that point in the story we'll talk a little bit about kind of how this came to be that uh, uh, America in particular Britain uh, uh, came to kind of support the Zionist cause but yeah but it really didn't have a lot to do with the Bible uh, at that point uh, it, uh, some of you who lived through the Cold War may have a better idea of what's had to do with some of it but uh, uh so this is important just from a historical perspective. From the time of Joshua, when Israel began to take occupation of the land, until the present, Israel controlled most of the promised land for less than a hundred years around the time of King David. From the time of Joshua uh, to the present, uh, Israel controlled the heart of the promised land. Remember the phrase, from Dan to Beersheba? Uh, that's the, the way we usually think of the land of Israel, the promised land in the Bible, is from Dan, along in here, down to Beersheba, this, this area, sort of the area that Abraham and his descendants largely kind of occupied. They controlled the heart of this land only for about 600 out of the last 3,300 years, uh, from uh, the time of Joshua until the time of the Assyrian exile when they lost most of it and then they hung on to the southern portion uh, for a little longer until 586. And then at 586 the Babylonians took it, they lost control of the land. From 586 BC to the present, 2600 years, Israel only had an independent kingdom in the land for a period of about 50 years 100 years before Jesus. 
So from the time that Israel lost control of the land to the Babylonians until the modern nation of Israel, they only had an independent nation in the land for about 50 years under what was called the Hasmoneans or the Maccabeans. Yes? I mean the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel, the Jewish people. The Jewish people had an independent nation or had control of their land. From the Babylonians until, uh, until uh, 1948, the land was under the control of one of the world empires for this entire period, except for that 50 years. It was controlled by various Christian empires, Muslim empires, pagan empires, but but Israel didn't control the land. Did I see a hand over here? Okay, I got about two minutes. Put it on a timeline where you can see it. Promise to Abraham here, we're down here in the modern nation of Israel. Israel controlled the heart of the land for about this period and controlled most of the land promised to Abraham only for that little period. And they had a little brief independent kingdom there uh, that they managed to wrestle free from the Greek empires before the Romans came in and took it over again. So when you look at it in that broad timeline, some, one, of the, one of the statements you'll sometimes hear is there's never been a Palestinian nation. That's factually correct. There's never been an independent Palestinian nation until now. There is now, but it's not really independent. They're under control, but the UN has recognized them. But there has also not been an independent nation of Israel since 64 BC. So it calls into question what we mean by forever. What did God mean by forever when back here he told Abraham, I'm going to give you the land and your descendants will have it forever. It's going to belong to you forever. So what happened to forever? Uh, one of the things that happened to forever, and then I'm going to have to stop with this. We're going to come back and talk about this. One of the things that happened to forever is something God actually predicted with Moses. He told Moses, there's going to come a time when you are going to rebel, and I will do to you what I did to the Canaanites. Uh, if you don't keep my commands, all these curses are going to come on you, and you will serve your enemies and uh, I will put a yoke on you until they have destroyed you and you will be plucked off the land that you are going to possess. And prophets like Jeremiah said that's coming with the Babylonians and it came and from the Babylonians till the present they only had that one little brief period of independence. So there is a competing story in scripture about what was to happen with the land and the people. On the one hand there's the promise to Abraham that says forever on the other hand, there's Moses and the prophets that are saying, well, not exactly. Maybe. It's kind of up to you. Uh, so what we're going to do in a few weeks, we're going to come back and look at this and say, okay, let's take a closer look at the promises and the prophecies and look at a very important truth, I think, about how we read biblical prophecy. How are we to understand prophecies? What do they really tell us? What's the message of the prophets on this subject? And how do the prophets speak to what's going on today? Did they predict things that would happen thousands of years later? Or maybe they had a message 
to God's people in every generation about how we should act. And that may be the more important message. We're going to come back and look at that. So thank you. Two things right before we wrap up. One, just in case, if you're wanting to get the book, I can take credit cards, FYI. Two, um, when we taught this class as a lifelong learning class, we had uh, a woman uh, leave the class after two weeks. She decided she could not hear anything possibly remotely negative towards Israel, and so she just left the class. I would beg of you not to do that. <laughs> right? That's kind of the definition of closed-mindedness, right? not being able to hear anything that you don't like. So I would just encourage you that even if off the cuff you're thinking, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to agree with where they're going to come out, just hold on. It, you know, you're going to do a class on Sunday mornings anyway. Might as well be here. Uh, and just, just wait. Let us get through the whole thing. And then make your decisions at the end rather than deciding up front what you will or will not agree with. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Glenda said my book is profound. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's great. That'd be perfectly fine. Great. Thank you all. We'll see you next week.